Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi there, my name is Zach Twomley, and since you are able to hear those bird songs in the background... That must mean that it's time for the latest episode of When Diplomacy Fails Us for Cyanversary Project. Thanks very much for joining us, and I hope you enjoy what we have here today. This is the second part of a two-parter for David Lloyd George's biography. It's an exercise designed to give you a rundown of who the guy was and why he was so important to the whole Versailles process. But this is also the 14th episode, so 
If you have no idea where you are right now, maybe you just stumbled across this episode and thought you'd listen to the latest one, that's great, and by all means, stick around. But you should know, of course, that even just by downloading and listening to this show, you are really helping out. Our figures have really gone up since this project started. We're doing super well in terms of downloads and everything else, so that's really great. But I would always love to get more downloads. I would always love to get more history friends plugged into this project. And I would always love to get the word of what When Diplomacy Felt is and what it's doing out there to more people. And that's where you can come in and help. The best way by far to help this podcast is simply to tell people about it, whether that means telling them in person or sharing something that we do online or retweeting us on Twitter or, you know, like sharing the Facebook post or anything like that. We do an awful lot of things on social media, so you'll be wise to plug into them. Facebook page, When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, the Facebook group, When Diplomacy Fails Podcast group, or Twitter, at WDF Podcast. Supporting us and getting in touch with us on those platforms is completely free, so what are you waiting for? If you want more of Zach Twomley, but specifically more educational stuff in your life, then make sure to track us down in those places. Other than that, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, that is great. But if you're not listening on Apple Podcasts and you're like, well, how do I review the podcast? Maybe do something different. Maybe talk about us on Reddit. Talk about us somewhere else and spread the word further. Get as many people as you can to listen to this show. And by doing that, we'll be able to do our bit for history and you'll be able to do your bit for being fit, which is, of course, that acronym I developed years and years ago as the best way to support this podcast. Lots of things have changed since I started this over six and a half years ago, but something which has not changed is the fact that this podcast is dependent upon the support, but most of all the interest of you guys. That has only grown since we began, and I cannot thank you all enough. Alrighty, so without any further ado, let's get into this.
You are listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 14. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons, delegates, all, to our second profile episode of David Lloyd George in the Versailles Anniversary Project. Last time, we brought his career almost up to the point, in late 1916, when Lloyd George usurped his old friend and leader Herbert Asquith to assume the premiership atop a coalition swimming with intrigue, resentments, and ambitious, scheming statesmen. Plenty of egos were floating around, plenty of talent also happened to be floating around between them, and it was up to David Lloyd George not just to balance the different personalities from the Conservatives, Labour and Liberal parties, and to do it better than his predecessor, but also to make use of this ministry of talents to win the war, and as soon as possible. 1917 would be a great test. Could David Lloyd George avoid the horrific travesties on the battlefield which Asquith's government had limped into in years past? Could David Lloyd George revive the Russian spirit, expand the war effectively into the Middle East, and maintain British forces on the Western Front? Time would tell, since, as usual, a grand offensive was of course planned. Without any further ado then, let's take you all to... Late 1916 to early 1917, where David Lloyd George and friends planned for what they hoped would be the twilight era of the war. Now that the soldiers had the shells, and now that he was in charge of providing them, David Lloyd George turned his full attention towards pursuing the war to its successful conclusion. It was an interest and a profession that quickly became an obsession. Lloyd George was, similar to Churchill and unlike the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, endlessly fascinated by military matters. Lloyd George pored over maps and plans and asked ceaseless questions to anyone who would answer him, and this was before he came into a position which required an up-to-date and regular delivery of intel on the war situation. His easy adaptability to the new military position and the tenacity and outside-the-box way of thinking which he approached military matters has convinced some historians that Lloyd George, had politics or law not been his jam, would have made a great commander. So said one that Lloyd George had in him the makings of a greater soldier than anyone engaged on either side, with the possible exceptions of Foch and Ludendorff, born under other social conditions, he might well have been in the army, and in that case the British army would have thrown up another Marlborough. Another, perhaps more realistic historian, noted instead that Of all the civilians I have known, Lloyd George seems to have possessed in the highest degree the capacity for becoming a great soldier, but he might have lost several armies while he was learning his trade. Lloyd George was not a soldier by any stretch. We saw in the last episode how his experience in the Welsh militia, where his bracers broke and his trousers came down, don't exactly give us the most, well, flattering image of him in any kind of military force. But he also had scant military experience during the Boer War, and the Boer War only made him more anti-war and more dubious of those ranks and positions within the army that he did not understand. On the 1st of January 1915, before the mess with the shells had blown up, not literally, in Asquith's face, Lloyd George had written a memorandum, the first of many, which were to be distributed at critical times of the war. The memo was distributed within the different layers of government, and 
among cabinet members. Its rallying cry was for ingenuity, for imagination when dealing with the Germans, for another offensive to take advantage of Germany's weak allies, for a different way of looking at the war and to avoid sending the half a million newly trained men into the predictable meat grinder on the Western Front. Strike at vulnerable Austria, land some men in the Far East, fortify the Salonican Front in the Balkans, and march through the weaker Central Powers alongside Serbs, Romanians and Greeks. All such plans were under consideration in Lloyd George's active mind, and indeed we know now many military strategists further afield were considering similar plans. Breaking the deadlock which had set in by early 1915 was by no means a problem which troubled Lloyd George alone. What was more, some individuals believed they had the solution. Never mind the Far East, insisted one very vocal first Lord of the Admiralty, strike at the Ottoman Empire itself, and the sick man of Europe would be sent forcibly to his grave, courtesy of British naval might. Winston Churchill's Gallipoli campaign idea, which Lloyd George provided his enthusiastic support for, was to end in abject failure and cost over 200,000 British, Irish, Anzac and Canadian casualties, let alone the French and Turkish soldiers who were also killed or wounded in such a poorly planned and executed campaign. 1915 then ended with grand pronouncements to do better next year, but 1916 would provide more of the same. Successful and adept as Asquith had been in balancing the egos of heavy hitters like Lloyd George and Winston Churchill in his cabinet, the act of balancing additional egos from the Conservative and Labour parties who joined him in a coalition wartime government in May 1915 proved too great a task. It did not help that Asquith did not seem capable of making concrete or long-lasting decisions. He agonised over alienating members of cabinet and he attempted to tread a neutral line for the sake of harmony with the result that nobody in Cabinet liked him and no harmony was found. On the 20th of November 1916, following yet another set of disasters on the Somme and further carnage across the board, Lloyd George met at the Hyde Park Hotel in London with Bonner Law and Edward Carson, the leader of the Conservative and Unionist parties respectively. This triumvirate hatched a scheme to eject Asquith and for Lloyd George to replace him as Prime Minister, though Asquith would remain an honorary member of the War Council. Historians have spilled much ink about this plot, which eventually affected the change which the Triumvirate desired to Asquith's disgust. But what had led Lloyd George to meet his political peers in this room, in the context of such anti-Asquith scheming? Why had Lloyd George determined to throw his leader under the bus? As it happened, Lloyd George's motivations were not as callous or cruel as that. They were instead the critical mixture of opportunism, ambition and concern that Asquith genuinely was not fit for the position and that his leadership was damaging the country. For further reference, it is also worth examining Lloyd George's own justification for toppling Asquith's premiership. In his memoirs, Lloyd George would later write that while Asquith had courage, composure and judgment in a superlative degree, a wartime Prime Minister, must also have vision, imagination and initiative. He must show untiring assiduity, must exercise constant oversight and supervision of every sphere of war activity, must possess driving force to energise this activity, must be in continuous consultation with experts, official and unofficial, as to the best means of utilising the resources of the country in conjunction with allies for the achievement of victory. If to this can be added a flair for conducting a great fight, then you have an ideal war minister.
This description of the ideal Prime Minister was, as Lloyd George well knew, a description of everything Asquith was not, and everything Lloyd George felt he was. Only with the regime change could the change in the war be achieved, and David Lloyd George certainly looked to 1917 as the year when his leadership would surely make a difference. Having ascended to the top of the greasy pole, he was, like Disraeli before him, uniquely unqualified, at least in terms of the traditional aristocratic credentials, for this position. Just like Disraeli, though, Lloyd George was determined to make up for his low birth with his tenacity, energy and passion. He was, by the account of the historian Thomas Jones, the skilled negotiator who had made his name in solving disputes. His empathy and care for the common man had been sourced from his closed Welsh origins and were extended to those in need. He was rarely overcome by small details. He could be blisteringly arrogant or suave and charming. He listened deeply and with respect to men of intellect regardless of their station. He was, in many respects, the ideal combination of solicitor and statesman. As Thomas Jones continued, He never haggled over details. He was acutely observant as the negotiations proceeded, divining much more than he knew, pouncing on any weakness in the deputation's case, brushing aside as of no importance what he did not want to hear. He had always been briefed by the experts, and had ascertained in advance the currents of public opinion, not only by a perusal of the press, but by circuitous and subterranean inquiries. And he knew when to touch the tender chords. When Minister of Munitions and desperately short of guns in France, he found their makers reluctant to divulge their trade secrets to one another, he told them, The Great Offensive in France begins this afternoon at 3 o'clock. How many of you have sons there? Will they have enough guns? How many of you put your secrets before your sons? Lloyd George had left the Ministry of Munitions behind, like he had left the Treasury behind and the Board of Trade before that. As the historian T.E. Raymond discerned, Lloyd George was able to rise at a single stride from the status of a party manager to that of a great national statesman, the personification of the warlike resolve of an imperial people. Now he was the Prime Minister, leading Britain through its ultimate test in military, economic and political terms. The toughest years were still to come for Britain as 1917 dawned, but Lloyd George had demonstrated already that he belonged in the spotlight and at the helm of the ship of state. It remained to be seen if he had it in him to steer the ship successfully and responsibly. It remained to be seen if he was the right man to lead in the right fight, and if he was the man afterwards to make the right peace. If in this war I have paid scant heed to the call of party, although I have been as strong a party man as any in this house, it is because I realised from the moment the Prussian cannon hurled death at a peaceable and inoffensive little country, that a challenge had been sent to civilization to decide an issue higher than party, deeper than party, wider than all parties, an issue upon the settlement of which will depend the fate of men in this world for generations, when existing parties will have fallen like dead leaves on the highway. David Lloyd George knew that he had to justify his toppling of Asquith and his ascendancy, so he turned, predictably enough, to the war as justification. We do not have the time or space to justify or criticise Lloyd George's actions, but it should be said that, in the opinion of one historian at least, Britain was ready for the firm war leadership by early 1917, which Asquith's premiership had not provided. As Thomas Jones wrote, The country, in the main, was relieved at the fall of Asquith, and, as Tory MP and leader of the House of Lords, Lord 
Curzon told the Lords, was not only willing to be led, but was almost calling to be driven. There was widespread unease at the prevailing extravagance and lack of discipline at home, at a time when news was arriving daily of thousands giving up their lives for their country. This advice, which betrays the current anxieties of his councillors, he heeded when constructing his government and when making his first speech in Parliament as Prime Minister on the 19th of December. He opened that speech with these solemn words. I appear before the House of Commons today with the most terrible responsibility that can fall on the shoulders of any living man. He then characteristically went at once to the point of danger, the German peace proposals which had reached the cabinet on the previous day, and he made it plain to the world that only a peace which afforded complete restitution, full reparation and effective guarantees against repetition would be entertained by Great Britain. He went on to ask for the mobilisation of all the national resources, painting, as he put it, not a gloomy but a stern picture. Sacrifices should be real and should be equal. Let the nation place its comforts, its luxuries, its indulgences, its elegances on the altar, as the men were doing who were in the daily communion with death. Let us proclaim during the war a national Lent, he said. So Lloyd George sought to change the way Britain was fighting the war by altering its governance of it at home. By the time he became Prime Minister, virtually all questions relating to the war were dealt with by the War Committee, consisting of seven men, which itself had to answer to the pre-existing cabinet of 23 ministers. Lloyd George wanted to streamline this, and he did so without a touch of sentiment or consideration for those that might resent being shut out. The War Committee of seven men was replaced by a War Cabinet of five, the State Departments were shut out, and it was granted authority by Lloyd George's membership of it. Apart from Lloyd George, the four other men, Lord Curzon, Bonner Law, Arthur Henderson and Lord Milner, had no ministerial duties but were eminently capable administrators in their own right. Their new job was simply to successfully pursue the war by connecting with the relevant individuals and departments as they saw fit, with Lloyd George giving the final say. Sir Maurice Hankey was a man who would later distinguish himself as the note-taker and agenda-setter during the Big Three meetings at the Paris Peace Conference, but he was brought in to record all that was said and to do the busy work which the War Cabinet members had not the time to do themselves. So he was appointed Cabinet Secretary, a position which was invented on the spot, and made Hankey the senior civil servant in the United Kingdom, answerable to the Prime Minister, to whom he had served as aide for several years. Lloyd George had been impressed with Sir Maurice Hankey's work in the past, and he believed that he could help speed up the processes of the different administrations which Britain contained. It was fortunate that Lloyd George was correct. Hankey's appointment became pivotal, and Hankey himself became arguably the most important background man in Lloyd George's administration. All memoranda were worked on by Hankey and his personal army of 30 typists, printers, and other civil servants. Almost immediately, workflow increased and improved, but Hankey was far from the only new kid on the block. Another critical player was Andrew Bonner Law, who served as leader of the House of Commons. Lloyd George's adjustments to government did mean that everything was decided at a quicker pace, but it also meant that he presented himself to the House of Commons less and less often. This disconnect between Lloyd George and Parliament would pave the way for his undoing in later years, but during the war years, Lloyd George was again fortunate to be able to recognise talent when he saw it, and forge yet another pivotal political relationship. During these critical years, Lloyd George and Andrew Bonner Law complemented one another 
perfectly. Lloyd George had absolute confidence in Bonner Law's abilities to represent policy to the information-hungry MPs, and the two also lived right beside one another in bustling wartime London, so that helped as well. Bonner Law was not without his flaws, mainly one of pessimism after losing his wife shortly before the war, and two of his sons during it. The poor guy must have been heartbroken, but Lloyd George did not cease to attempt to jolly along his neighbour in number 11 Downing Street, and he recorded one attempt in his memoirs. Will you tell me, I said, exasperated at all his disdain for the attractions of life, what is it that you do care for? Scenery? Women? Music? None of them has any meaning to you, Andrew. What is it that you do like? I like bridge, was the reply. So Andrew Bonner Law and David Lloyd George played their fair share of bridge and of chess, and these two politicians helped to balance the Prime Minister's responsibilities effectively at a time when he needed it the most. So while Sir Maurice Hankey handled the bureaucracy, Andrew Bonner Law handled the democracy, and this left Lloyd George free to pursue the war. He was, by virtue of this excellent delegating, freer than any of his predecessors to accomplish this task. But did that mean that British participation in the war would be cleaner, more efficient, or less horrendously costly? Well, not exactly. As soon as he became Prime Minister, Lloyd George had to face head-on into the challenges put out by Germany's suspicious open offers of a peace conference, buttressed by Woodrow Wilson's offer to determine an avowal of their respective views as to the terms upon which the war might be concluded. Lloyd George had to tread carefully even before 1917 arrived, but historians now suspect that the diplomatic campaign was twinned with the military. After making a show of offering an open-ended peace, which they knew their rivals could not accept, German High Command used the occasion caused by their snubbing to reinstitute unrestricted submarine warfare for the new year of 1917. This act was a profound risk for the Germans, as the neutral US president had criticised the measure several times in the past, but the Germans evidently saw the rewards as worth it. If the Germans were taking a risk, then Lloyd George was content to take one as well. The convoy system had previously been looked down upon by many in the old guard of the navy, but with Germany declaring its intent to sink all marine craft on sight, something radical was needed to be done. Sir Morris Hankey as ever did the paperwork, and before long, joined by the American marine shipping after April 1917, the convoy system had been instituted. It had taken far too long, but Lloyd George had overseen a reform in dealing with the U-boat threat, which would, though nobody could have known it, be repeated a generation later. With the naval threat eased, deals were made with Woodrow Wilson to ensure that the Allies got first dibs on American foodstuffs, petroleum and merchant shipping, so that the flood of traffic across the Atlantic became a raging torrent and Britain's vulnerability to a German naval siege was overcome. Lloyd George believed that the naval threat was only one element of the struggle, just as he saw the Western Front as only one front in the conflict, and by no means always its most important. Lloyd George did want unity of command for the Western Front above all, but he also wanted closer cooperation between the Allies on their different fronts. He wanted the Allies to pool resources, intelligence, soldiers, and he believed that only by making use of their combined strength could the Central Powers actually be defeated? 
The problem with this view was that, even within his own cabinet, disagreement existed between the Easterners and Westerners over how best to pursue the war. Should Germany just be ground down on the Western Front, or should she be undermined by chipping away at her allies or strategic positions elsewhere? This was the crux of the question, but Lloyd George didn't sit still on a decision for long. He was convinced that, if matters had been professionally and responsibly conducted, the Turk would have been overthrown in 1916, and that in 1917, a reinforced Italy could have defeated the half-starved and unreliable Austrians. Thomas Jones summarised the problem. Generals would never willingly spare a battalion for another front, and should be compelled where persuasion failed. They underrated Britain's ever-growing superiority to the enemy in guns, ammunition and airplanes. The necessary depletion of Allied strength on the West would still, he argued, have left forces superior to those of the enemy. But the inflexible Allied generals were too strong for an amateur, who was accused of fighting battles without maps, and with always seeking for the chink in the enemy's armour. Lloyd George declared and demonstrated that he had little to no personal interests which divided his attention or hampered his freedom of action, but he was only one man. In his memoirs he later heaped a great deal of criticism on the Allied generals at home and abroad for taking the war so personally, for hoarding resources for their home front, or for letting emotion get in the way of great strategic opportunities. A great example of how this was costing the Allies, Lloyd George believed, could be perceived in Russia. By September 1915, the strategic situation in Russia had deteriorated to the extent that Tsar Nicholas II had appointed himself constitutional monarch and passed much power to the Duma in a bid to stifle the collapse and put some steel into patriotic Russians. Yet the absence of patriotism in Russia had never been the problem. Instead, it had been the lack of organisation, the criminally undersupplied soldiery, the half-trained hordes of badly equipped and clothed men who were thrown back in their hundreds of thousands, before the apparently unstoppable Austro-German advance. By September 1915, indeed, the Central Powers were 200 miles beyond Warsaw and showed no signs of stopping. Lloyd George's urgings at that moment for the Western Allies to donate some materiel or other support felt largely on deaf ears as the grinding punishment on the Western Front proceeded apace. There was no chance that the French were about to provide soldiers or war material when they were fighting for their national existence, and similarly, the Italians, Greeks and Belgians had their own problems. Lloyd George had planned to travel to Russia in 1916, only for the Easter Rising to blow up in Ireland and redirect his attention. This escape, at least, I owe to Ireland, he wrote. An escape, indeed, for the figure who did go to Russia, Lord Kitchener, never returned when his vessel struck a mine and went to the bottom of the sea, with that famous poster boy on board. By early 1917, these problems had crystallised, and yet the Russian situation had deteriorated still further. By February of that year, a new democratic revolution in Russia overthrew the Tsar and instituted a temporary republic. Lloyd George was desperate to ensure that Russia remained a threat to the central power's flank, but he proved largely powerless to reach so far to the east, or to revitalise the flagging Russian morale, which had been crushed by several years of terminally bad leadership. Lloyd George looked at the Russian situation with a kind of realistic sympathy. He did not share the views of some of his colleagues that the reforming Democrats or the Bolsheviks were inherently bad, but he didn't put much faith in the former to stand the test of time. 
the Bolsheviks, under the cold and calculating Lenin, were bound to survive, and survive they did. Lloyd George's fears surrounding the Russian Revolution of October 1917 revolved less around what the terrifying new ideas would do to Britain, or how it would look for established British statesmen to deal with these upstarts, and more on the impact it would have on the war effort. Lloyd George feared that the Bolsheviks might be ploughing a field in readiness for planting with Prussianism. With the Germans having penetrated so deeply into Russia, they would be able to secure resources which were running low everywhere. Military stores, wheat, cattle, oil and coal. Lloyd George even feared that German militarism would not stop there and that its leaders would use the opportunity to steal away hundreds of thousands of Russians for use in their own armies. After all, Lloyd George reasoned, had Napoleon not done the very same thing with his Grand Armée? Inevitably, though, it was with France that British attention mattered most. Frenchmen were daily fighting and dying on home soil to preserve their homeland, and Britain provided its increasingly unconditional support for this task. The initially small commitment had increased a million-fold since the ultimatum had expired on the 4th of August, 1914. Now it was inconceivable to imagine that Britain would ever have remained aloof from the conflict. By the time Lloyd George arrived at 10 Downing Street, much of the military plans for spring 1917 had been laid out. Joffrey's replacement as commander of French forces in the west, Robert Nivelle, promised great things from a new offensive along the Aisne. Lloyd George liked Nivelle, but had leaned towards a new Italian offensive for the year instead. When the French resisted and the Italians were indifferent though, Lloyd George attempted to make the best out of a bad situation. A bad situation, indeed. The Nivelle offensive achieved next to nothing, and cost the Allies over 300,000 casualties, including 32,000 Frenchmen killed within the first few days. The Nivelle offensive contributed to the downturn in French morale, which only the combined efforts of Ferdinand Foch and Georges Clemenceau were able to revive later in that year. During the summer of 1917, though, in the wake of this disaster, Lloyd George's attention was taken up by matters not exclusive to the military theatre. The diplomats were talking too. The League of Nations idea was not spat out of either the preliminary negotiations for the armistice in late October 1918, and nor was it the outcome of Woodrow Wilson's feverish pressure campaign during the Paris Peace Conference. Instead, the League of Nations took root early on within the British War Cabinet, as much as within the American President's mind. As early as January 1917, in fact, when Lloyd George's government gave a reply to the US President's aforementioned effort to secure some sort of peace conference, a commitment to some form of League idea was underlined. What, if anything, did Lloyd George hope to gain from such an idea? Well, the answer is relatively simple. The creation of such an institution would make an eruption of a conflict like the Great War unlikely in the future, and it would also protect British interests by co-opting those other powers that did not wish to repeat the experience. The concept of a League of Nations was revolutionary for sure, since if it was successful, it would have a significant impact on the way which British diplomats conducted their business. Yet the vagueness of the League of Nations idea at its early stage, and the varied opinions of what form it would take, were to its advantage. Not even Woodrow Wilson, the man credited with envisioning the idea, knew what form the League would take, and even as late as December 1918, when Wilson arrived in Paris, he was still mulling it over. The British took the League idea under consideration early, though. In preparing the agenda for the first session of the Imperial War Cabinet that met early in 1917, 
The League, as the historian George W. Egerton recounts, came under the microscope of everyone's favourite civil servant, Sir Morris Hankey. Egerton wrote, Morris Hankey, the influential secretary of the War Cabinet, identified the three major alternatives that had emerged during the early years of the war with regard to future international organisation, and that he thought should be debated by imperial statesmen. The first alternative involved the creation of some sort of international organisation, such as a league to enforce peace. Second, there was the alternative of constructing a league of the character of the Concert of Europe formed after 1815. A final alternative involved a simple reversion to something in the nature of a balance of power. The vagueness and resulting flexibility of the League idea appealed to British administrators and ministers alike. Sir Edward Grey as Foreign Secretary was even talking about it in his correspondence with Woodrow Wilson throughout 1916. It was not hard to find individuals that possessed some kind of opinion on the concept either. Some believed the League could serve as a convenient means of protecting the Empire. Others believed it would change the way diplomacy was conducted. Others still believed it would not end war but it would make it less common. Lloyd George didn't take an active interest in the League idea. He instead was content to delegate responsibility for developing it to his subordinates. These subordinates were split untidily into two rough groups, one which believed that the League would augment the British Imperium and aid her efforts to maintain the balance of power. This group was the majority in Cabinet and included Morris Hankey. The other minority group upheld the League as a brave new beginning, as an alternative to the old methods of preserving British security through the traditional channels alone. This was led above all by the Under-Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, Sir Robert Cecil, the son of Lord Salisbury and later a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize for his work with the League in 1937. Cecil was an effective evangelist for the League's potential, but not even he believed it would eradicate war altogether. Still under his direction, the League of Nations would receive enthusiastic support from a post-war British populace who believed in its potential and wished to avoid another great war through its auspices. Examining the early support, or at least the consideration which the League of Nations received in Britain, helps to paint an even more dynamic picture of Lloyd George's administration in the final years of the war. A concept so often associated with the American president alone in fact inspired much debate and enthusiasm within Europe before Wilson had even presented it as one of his 14 points. The arguable difference was that more scepticism existed on the continent regarding the actual realistic utility of the League, a scepticism which was to prove tragically prophetic in the end. In later supplementary episodes examining the League idea and how it was developed for the Treaty of Versailles, we will return to the British work, but for the moment, keep in your head that Woodrow Wilson was by no means the sole innovator when it came to brave new ideas. One brave new idea, which only Lloyd George's ascension to the Premiership made possible, was the approval of the Balfour Declaration on the 2nd of November 1917. One of the more startling aspects of the infamous declaration was that it was passed in such a casual manner. Morris Hankey, for one, didn't even mention the declaration in his diaries, and the entire cabinet was more occupied with the deteriorating situation in Italy following the disastrous Italian loss and retreat at Caporetto the week before. We do not have time here, or at least at the moment, to properly examine the declaration or to trace its consequences. 
Other podcasters, such as Daryl Cooper and his Martyr Made podcast, do this job much better than I do. However, it should be said that several historians have singled out Lloyd George's more imperialistic view of the war and the necessity of expanding into Palestine to protect the Suez Canal as a critical ingredient in the decision to make the declaration. Britain was, after all, expanding its interests and writ into the Middle East. By Christmas of 1917, she would be marching through the streets of Jerusalem, and these expanded interests were to influence her behaviour at the Paris Peace Conference. Where imperialism, cloaked in the new guise of the mandates system that David Lloyd George presented to the world, was one of her guiding concerns. The British domination of the Middle East after the Great War, and the expansion of its empire to incredible new heights in spite of its losses, were outcomes which the busy civil service contributed heavily towards. Unlike British policy towards Europe, which was confused and unsure of what it really wanted from Germany or from France, a neat little system had been arranged by spring 1918 under the authority of David Lloyd George, where a new department, the Political Intelligence Department, or PID, had been established in March 1918. This new department was essentially the British version of the American inquiry which had helped create Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, and it was tasked with investigating and researching all manner of important questions throughout the world. Their focus, as it happened, tended to dwell on Europe, and the political intelligence departments and members favoured Wilsonian ideals for Europe, even if they couldn't quite put their fingers on what they meant. By contrast, when they considered the Middle East, the political intelligence department's views were more in line with the Eastern Committee. The Eastern Committee was a committee formed of government ministers and secretaries who wished to maintain and to expand British influence and power in the Middle East. As the historian Eric Goldstein explains, the commonality of purpose between the PID, that hard-working researchers think tank on the one hand, and the Eastern Committee, that opportunistic, expansionist, imperialistic body on the other, had great implications for the post-war order as well as the negotiations of the Paris Peace Conference. Goldstein said, Both these groups, the Political Intelligence Department and the Eastern Committee, overlapped when it came to evolving a solution to the Eastern question, the problem of who was to succeed the Ottoman Empire. While British planning for the European settlement often suffered from a confusion of direction, British policy formulation for the future of the Ottoman territories was methodical by comparison. The Political Intelligence Department provided the initial discussion of documents. The Eastern Committee then debated the possible options, and finally the Imperial War Cabinet decided any disputes as to priorities. The result was a clear set of goals for Britain's negotiators to achieve, a fact which undoubtedly aided Britain in dominating the Eastern Settlement. The Political Intelligence Department would distinguish itself in the weeks leading up to the armistice, dividing its attention between nine different subcommittees, each one tasked with researching and answering specific questions relating to the peace. The British, as we have seen, were somewhat top-heavy when it came to committees, civil servants and departments, but thanks to David Lloyd George's work, none of this activity clouded the judgement or delayed the decisions of his five-man war cabinet. The Prime Minister remained, during the last two years of the war, better informed and in a better position to tackle the relevant crises, as they occurred, than any of his predecessors. This, of course, did not mean his job was easy, nor did it mean that he got everything right.
Lloyd George referred to the Passchendaele campaign as one of the blackest horrors in history, and during his memoirs, he poured so much venom onto the British commanders, Sir Douglas Haig and Chief of the Imperial Staff, Sir William Robertson, that one wonders how he ever shared the same room with either man at any time. Lloyd George's rough treatment of the two men is not without justification. Not even Duff Cooper, Haig's more sympathetic biographer, could avoid the conclusion that optimism was not merely a sentiment but a policy for Sir Douglas Haig. This translated itself into excessive, dangerous confidence on the field and earned Haig the unflattering epithet, the butcher of the Somme, for his troubles. While he would arguably regain much credibility in the twilight phase of the war with his hundred days offensive that broke the German Hindenburg line, opinions of Sir Douglas Haig remain varied and bitter to this day. However, having said that, Lloyd George's accusations and vitriol directed against his commanders ignored many of his own undoubted shortcomings. Operating in the background was the military attrition and grind that continued to wear down the Germans, as casualties which were increasingly difficult to replace were incurred. It is important to remember that each instalment of the bloody business contributed towards the end result of German military collapse. However, ineffectually, this end goal was reached. It was not, in the military sense, all for nothing then, in that all these offensives gradually wore down and broke the German military, but it was certainly difficult to argue that all this death had been necessary. As Thomas Jones wrote, Lloyd George's policy of defence on the Western Front and an attack in Italy was never properly tried out and cannot therefore be judged as he judged Passchendaele. The alternative hypothetical battles he fights on paper are always victorious. It is unlikely that the Germans would have remained inactive spectators in the West, and it is certain that they could transport help to Austria more easily and quickly than the Allies could to Italy, for their shrunken shipping was needed more and more to bring men and material from America. If 1917 did provide any tacit benefits in Lloyd George's mind, then it was in the approval from his cabinet and commanders of the need for a supreme allied commander of the Western Front. As 1918 loomed and as the collapse and exit of Russia appeared inevitable, there was never a more urgent moment to unite the Allies together under one common cause and single commander. Lloyd George did not even oppose the idea that this commander was to be French, so long as that commander possessed the wherewithal to coordinate between the British, French and arriving American recruits in Flanders, he was contented. More than that, he was impatient for this reform to finally be instituted. In addition to this military need, Lloyd George was drawn to the increasing activity in the diplomatic sphere by the two camps in 1917, with the question of peace terms normally at the centre of the discussions. Back channels of varying degrees of effectiveness were engineered by the Italians, Austrians, French and Germans in equal measure. But he was sympathetic to the attempts by the new Habsburg Emperor, who took over from the Austro-Hungarian relic of Franz Josef, to arrange a peace conference. Familiar barriers remained, as Alsace-Lorraine continued to get in the way of any proposed peace settlement. France and Germany both refused to stop fighting until they had it firmly in their grasp, and as the year progressed with developments apparently swinging in favour of Germany, Lloyd George accepted that peace would not be reached until some breakthrough had been achieved. He also accepted, perhaps moved by the rumoured American initiative which would reveal the 14 points on the 8th of January 1918, that Britain should make plain its war and peace aims as soon as was possible. 
On the 5th of January 1918, in a little-known speech before Caxton Hall in London, Lloyd George outlined Britain's war aims. The speech had been prepared with unity and agreement in mind. Even the former Prime Minister and Foreign Secretary were consulted, in addition to the Dominion Ministers and Cabinet. During his speech, Lloyd George repudiated any predatory aims of conquest or annexation. He turned a sympathetic, considerate eye towards Belgium, Poland, Turkey and the German colonies. Lloyd George also signified what Britain recognised as a key ingredient for the peace to be achieved, when he said in reference to Alsace-Lorraine that We mean to stand by the French democracy to the death and the demand they make for a reconsideration of the great wrong of 1871. Lloyd George then concluded with three conditions which must be fulfilled before peace could be achieved. 1. The re-establishment of the sanctity of treaties. 2. A territorial settlement based on the right of self-determination or the consent of the governed. And finally, 3. The setting up of an international organisation to limit the burden of armaments and diminish the probability of war. Here again was another gesture in favour of supporting the ideology that underpinned the League of Nations. Lloyd George's clear support for the League of Nations meant that he saw eye-to-eye with President Wilson from an early stage. It suggested, but did not confirm, that the President and British Prime Minister could cooperate together, especially in their efforts to make the sceptical French see the wisdom of the League idea. Within its three aims, we can also discern a degree of vagueness which was becoming the theme of any war aims as they were declared. How, for instance, did David Lloyd George plan to implement national self-determination when he was, well, kind of ignoring Ireland? And would he be able to entangle the morass of different nationalities that existed in Eastern Europe? Where would compromise be found with these people? And did David Lloyd George even know anything about them? At the end of the day, though, this declaration, which in many respects was similar to Wilson's 14 points unveiled three days later, enjoyed an enthusiastic reception, especially in France. In Britain, as Lloyd George had hoped it would, the speech united the nation behind the Prime Minister. Lloyd George would need this unity if his premiership was to endure the final, greatest test. We have spent more than enough time examining these last desperate military gasps of the Germans, so we're going to fast forward somewhat to the autumn, when in October 1918, Lloyd George was riding the wave of expectation. Between the 5th to the 9th of October, he was actually in Versailles, having conversations with Georges Clemenceau and Vittorio Orlando regarding the Bulgarian and Turkish armistice requests. By this point, talk of peace from Germany and Austria was already in the air, and debate proceeded over the terms. There was some indignation over Woodrow Wilson's initiative in talking to the Germans without previous consultation with his associates. Lloyd George pinged several telegrams to Washington during the next two months. He would also ping himself back and forth between Britain and France several times over the next few weeks. To remove any confusion, Lloyd George asked Woodrow Wilson to send someone to Versailles with full plenipotentiary powers so that the Allies could, in tandem, develop the armistice terms for the Germans and Austrians to sign. Woodrow Wilson, as we know, determined to send his friend Edward House. Matters moved quickly once House arrived on the 26th of October. The Austrian capitulation to the Italians was learned of on the 29th of that month, and by the 4th of November, Clemenceau, House, Orlando and Lloyd George had arrived at a decision for the armistice terms. 
If we followed House's account alone, then the impression would have been given that everything had gone off without a hitch, and he had gotten everything he wanted. Of course, as we know, the reality was more complicated. House wrestled from his peers the commitment to view the 14 points as the basis for a final peace settlement. But in return, he had agreed to effectively disarm Germany under the terms for the armistice. In addition, Lloyd George's adamant stand against the freedom of the seas question in particular had the effect of deadening some of the Allied goodwill and rendering much of House's victory hollow. Not merely Britain, but the other two European allies were permitted to interpret the freedom of the seas element of the 14 points as they saw fit. This flexibility of interpretation was possible in the first place because of the deliberate vagueness of the 14 points as a document. When the three Allied premiers declared their willingness to use them as the basis for negotiations in the future, they thus felt that their freedom of action was not limited in the slightest, whereas the Germans believed that the spirit of the 14 points guaranteed them a fair shake when it came to the peace conference. Such expectations on virtually all sides of the fence were disappointed, but Lloyd George had already made the best of it. As the Germans had retreated en masse through French and Belgian territory, destroying all in their wake, another question came up for debate, that of reparations or compensation, represented in the 14 points document as restoration, or as Lloyd George put it in the cover note of the 14 points, by it, the signing of the armistice, they understand that compensation will be made by Germany for all damage done to the civilian population of the Allies and their property by the aggression of Germany by land, by sea and from the air. Woodrow Wilson signalled his approval of this measure, which soon gained a level of infamy that was arguably unequalled in the Versailles negotiations. Matters moved quickly thereafter. The Lansing note of the 5th of November communicated these developments to the German government and signalled the minimum terms which the Allies would be willing to accept. Ferdinand Foch, the supreme Allied commander and product of Lloyd George's steady campaigning for a unified Allied command, would receive the symbolic surrender of the German army. To sweeten the deal, Woodrow Wilson's earlier hints at regime change in Germany were wholly adopted, and the Kaiser, accompanied by the seven other German kings, determined to abdicate. Revolution and mutiny followed, and a republican constitution was proclaimed in Germany. Between the 8th to 11th of November, the stunned German delegation realised that the armistice terms were far harsher than they had been led, rightly or wrongly, to expect. On the expectation that they would be able to negotiate adjustments and compromises in the final peace conference though, not to mention the fact that Germany's military position had effectively collapsed, the German representatives signed, as we know, by 5.20am on the 11th of November 1918. Just over five hours later, that scene before Downing Street which opened our previous episode took place, as the crowds swarmed to pat their unifier, their war leader, their tireless campaigner, on the back. Later that afternoon, on that auspicious day, Lloyd George performed a speech in the House of Commons, after several months neglecting that body, in favour of his partner Bonner Law. Following an enthusiastic ovation by those present, Lloyd George declared, that this House do immediately adjourn until this time tomorrow, and that we proceed as a House of Commons to St. Margaret's to give humble and reverent thanks for the deliverance of the world from its great peril. In a spirit of euphoria, the large crowds gathered before Buckingham Palace and milled about for most of the day. The excitement hadn't abated the next day, when Lloyd George and his wife appeared outside number 10. The couple had to be saved by a posse of police from Scotland Yard, 
as the crowd seemed intent on carrying the Prime Minister on a victory lap throughout the city. Once safely inside, Lloyd George received a message from the man he had spent the last several weeks battling with, Edward House. No one, declared House, has done more to bring about this splendid victory than you. Perhaps in the heat of the moment, after reaching the culmination of so many years of exhaustive, all-consuming leadership, Lloyd George could be forgiven for believing House's praise. If he showed signs of letting it all go to his head, then he did not show any signs of stopping. The war had been won, and Lloyd George knew that a conference to hammer the peace together would soon be arranged. The military concerns had been dealt with, but before that grand journey into world diplomacy could be met, Lloyd George determined to prepare for a new political project. Before he would leave for Versailles, for Paris again, he was adamant that an election should be called, which would provide his all-conquering coalition with the unbeatable mandate it required to go to Paris. The questions of what the British people expected of Lloyd George were he to go there, and of what Lloyd George would find when he did take part, are questions we will answer in later episodes. For now, it helps to imagine Lloyd George at the top of his game, preparing for the next chapter in the political game, which he played so well. The date of the 14th of December, 1918, was set for a new general election, which would take account not only of Lloyd George's wartime record and desire for a mandate, but also of the greatly expanded franchise. Thanks to the Representation of the People Act, passed in February 1918, all men over 21 could vote whether or not they owned property. Lloyd George thus presided over an immense amount of political and demographic change in the United Kingdom. While he had balanced and dominated the conduct of the war, while he had streamlined the British wartime government and reinforced the British will, Lloyd George was still a politician. He drew his power from the people, and with their blessing, this wily Welshman believed that he would be able to do still more incredible things in Britain's name. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.